Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 10, Episode 19, The Sacred and the Profane. Bonus episode. While much of Japanese history revolves around the activities, proclivities, and sensitivities of Japan's political and social elite, this episode is specifically dedicated to a group of common people who often get left out of historical discussions. During the Edo period, which we will begin discussing next season, these people would be marginalized and discriminated against as ritually impure and possessing a potentially contagious spiritual defilement. However, the low status they were given from the 1600s and onward was actually a reversal of the treatment they received in former times. My main source for this episode is the most excellent book, Rethinking Japanese History, by Japanese historian Amino Yoshihiko. His research into the history of the Edo period outcasts and their forebears is especially insightful and has helped to reevaluate their historical position in society. If you want to take your study of Japanese history deeper, I highly recommend reading his book. Since ancient times, the Yamato people of Japan believed in the reality of spiritual pollution. Death and blood were two of the largest elements which might cause someone to become polluted or defiled and unsuitable to undertake spiritual practices and rituals. This pollution might be removed if the infected spent a short period in isolation, usually seven days, but it was considered somewhat transmissible. A person polluted by death could spread their pollution to those around them, sometimes with catastrophic results. You may recall from Season 3 how during the Asuka period, the imperial court would relocate entirely after the death of a sovereign to avoid the pollution that came from their passing. If there was a natural disaster or other calamity attributed to the gods or spirit world, spiritualists in the employ of the imperial court would investigate whether spiritual pollution was to blame. If, in the course of their investigation, they discovered that a noble or other court attendant had come into contact with someone who had suffered a loss in their family or experienced some other close proximity to blood, death, or other pollutant and had neglected the necessary isolation period, they might be blamed for bringing pollution into the court and removed from their position. Such carelessness would almost certainly bring larger complications during the Nara and Heian periods, as the business of government would grind to a halt until the necessary procedures were performed to remove the pollution from the Kuge and potentially from the Tenno himself. Because of the inherent dangers of allowing spiritual pollution into the vicinity of the court, great pains were taken to prevent such incidents. Warriors who lobbied for entry into the capital were questioned about when they had last encountered a dead body and turned away if they had not undergone the proper purification procedure since. While death and blood pollution tend to get the most attention, they were not the only means by which someone might become defiled. Cutting down old trees, moving large stones, or making other major alterations to natural landscape were also said to carry some kind of pollution, and it seems that most defilement boiled down to an upsetting of the status quo. Crimes of all kinds brought pollution, the most obvious being murder, but even stealing also brought defilement, likely because the thief was separating an object from its rightful owner, an offense against the previous natural order. 
Birth also brought pollution not only because of the involvement of blood, but because a new life was entering the world where it had not existed before. In many circumstances in which pollution might be induced, there was a need for human labor to deal with it. Undertakers are needed to properly care for the dead. Landscape was frequently altered to make the land arable or provide irrigation, and special workers needed to dispose properly of placentas in designated areas. Tracing the precise origins for these spiritual specialists is not easy, and it is possible that they are linked with the Buddhist hospices which sprang up in the Nara period in response to the famines that spread after the smallpox epidemic which killed between a third and a full half of the nation. The workers in those government-sponsored hospices were periodically asked to help with the removal of human remains after similar famine events throughout the Heian period. However, we cannot yet establish a direct link between the hospice workers and those who came after who performed similar work. Those who worked in professions which required continual exposure to spiritual defilement became known as hinin, which translates to non-human. While this may sound like an unflattering and even degrading title, there is evidence that it may have originally been a mark of respect. The Heenin were seen as people who were capable of removing spiritual pollution from a place which had been tainted, through unclean actions or through the transmission of defiled people. Folktales dating to the early Heian period often attribute them with possessing magical powers and being honored servants of local deities or bodhisattvas. By the latter 1000s, we even see evidence of organization of Heenin groups, as government documents from the time name a person as being the chieftain of the non-humans. While initially they practiced their purifying work in the capital and roughly throughout Kansai, they gradually spread to other parts of the nation. Heenin, or non-human, was a broad label, however, and included more than just ritualists and undertakers. Beggars were also considered Heenin. Those who were appointed to guard tombs were counted as Heenin, as were criminals. Branding criminals as Heenin may have contributed to the eventual marginalization of non-humans, as they were often tasked with being prison guards, executioners, and torturers. Eventually, the term Heenin would be synonymous with criminals tasked with such occupations. A subgroup of non-humans whose numbers swelled during Sengoku Jidai in response to demand worked as tanners. The process of removing animal skin and crafting it into leather is full of both blood and death, but armor, saddles, sword fittings, and many other implements of war required leather. This group was called the Kawata, but they were considered a subclass of a larger group called the Eta. The term Eta means full of defilement, and that gives you some idea of how they later came to be perceived. Working largely as butchers or in butchery-related fields, the Eta were also responding to demand for their work. They lived largely in small hamlets near to, but definitely separate from, larger communities like castle towns and villages. Their outsider status also occasionally placed them at the center of local conflicts. If two parties fell into an intractable disagreement, Heenin would often be asked to serve as a mediator in the dispute. While class status for the Eta was relatively inescapable, other members of the Heenin group possessed a much more fluid status. Certain Heenin were allowed to pay a fine to escape unclean status, 
which meant that it was not altogether uncommon for certain segments of Japanese peasantry to engage in an outcast profession like prostitution for a short time, perhaps to help pay family debts or other financial obligations, then purchase their commoner status back a few years later. This type of short-term uncleanliness was not without considerable risks, however, as these professions often carried their own inherent dangers. Those who operated brothels were not always the most trustworthy employers. The separateness of the Eta hamlets was largely in line with what we know of the other non-humans living in Japan up to this point, but was not necessarily a cause for discrimination. The name non-humans implies a separateness, an otherness, to these people's existence, which in times past was probably considered favorably. However, by the end of the Azuchi-Momoyama period, attitudes towards the non-humans in general, and the Eta and Kawata especially, had begun to change. When Tokugawa Ieyasu took possession of Kanto as his personal domain, he discovered that it hosted a thriving population of many Eta villages. The later Hojo clan had recognized a man named Tarozaimon as the rightful chief of the Eta throughout Kanto, and contracted their need for leather and certain other craftwork, local entertainers, and other unclean necessities through him. Tarozaimon himself collected a decent percentage as the official Eta labor contractor, and he applied to Ieyasu to renew his recognition as the rightful chieftain of the Eta in Kanto. However, likely wanting to establish his own loyal underlings in Kanto, Ieyasu instead recognized a man named Danzaimon Chikafusa as the official chief of the Kanto Eta. Reportedly charismatic and influential with certain segments of the Eta population in Kanto, Danzaimon Chikafusa proceeded to take over for his disempowered predecessor, and his descendants would continue in this position until the end of the Edo period. Under his direction and following Ieyasu's specific commands, Danzaimon relocated the Eta into more permanent hamlets and expanded his control over many brothels, theater troops, and beggars. As time wore on, many of these groups came into conflict with Danzaimon and his descendants, which resulted in lawsuits and the occasional judgment against the official leader of the defiled. Some of these groups managed to break free of his control, achieving a new status as virtual free agents. However, they were still among the untouchable, and while they may have successfully cut out the middleman, their presence in temples and shrines was still forbidden. There was one particular group who regularly encountered blood, death, and a variety of other sources of defilement who seems to have escaped untouchable status. The group I am speaking of is the samurai, whose professions regularly brought them into situations which would lead to ritual pollution. Unfortunately, I was unable to uncover any information about how and if such defilement was removed from the warrior class and the Ashigaru who fought under them. It is possible that they underwent regular bouts of isolation between campaigns, but I'm just making educated guesses at this point. If anyone listening happens to know how the samurai escaped accusations of being permanently polluted like the Eta, please reach out and let me know. As Tokugawa Ieyasu expanded his control from Kanto to the rest of the nation beginning in 1603, he and his ministers created a tiered caste structure based on their interpretation of Neo-Confucian teachings. At the very top, and I must emphasize that this was only on paper, was the emperor, followed closely by the court nobility. Just below the nobility was the samurai, followed by the farmers, craftspersons, and merchants. 
This tiered structure is probably familiar to you if you studied pre-modern Japan at all. We will discuss the reasons for this particular social organizing next season, but it bears mentioning that the merchants were not actually the lowest tier. The untouchables, who appear to have also been the unnameables, occupied a tier below the lowest official members of Japanese society. The Eta and Hinin were grouped together, and their movement was even more limited than residents throughout the rest of the nation. In a few seasons, we will discuss the fates of their descendants, who would fight for recognition as full human beings worthy of civil rights during the rapid change induced by the Meiji Restoration. Of course, Japan is hardly the only nation in history to discriminate against the class because of a perceived dirtiness of their occupations. In neighboring Korea, we've already discussed at some length the plight of the Baekjong people, who worked as butchers, among other so-called dirty professions. A striking difference, however, is that the Baekjong descended from Manchurian peoples who'd settled in Korea, while the Hinin had no such ethnic difference between themselves and their overlords. The non-humans of Japan were just as Japanese as the daimyo who eventually turned their noses up at them. The more permanent separation of the defiled people from the rest of the commoners did serve a purpose for the Tokugawa shogunate, however. It allowed them to divide the peasantry and guard against the potential for large-scale commoner uprisings similar to those that occurred during Sengoku. No matter how difficult the commoner's life might be, the stigma attached to the Hinin ensured that they would be left out of any anti-government conspiracies. This was not the only measure which the Bakufu employed to discourage cooperation among different strata of common folk, but we will discuss their other methods of repression and governance in the next season. This marks the end of the publicly available episodes for this season. Coming up on Patreon, there will be two exclusive bonus episodes, one dedicated to recounting the life of a samurai who served Nobunaga, Hideyoshi, and Ieyas and saw his fortunes rise accordingly, and a special story episode told from the perspective of a Chosan man set on avenging his family during the Imjin War. I hope you have enjoyed this season dedicated to the three decades of the Azuch Momoyama period. Regular episodes will resume on December 4th, as we examine the first century of Tokugawa family rule in the early Edo period. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.